what you guys are talking about as a church is how God has fulfilled his promises that he's made long ago in the advent or the arrival of Jesus, both in his first coming and his second. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And before we get into a time of teaching, I'd love to just uh, pray for us right now. Father God, thanks for uh, this month that is a reminder of you being faithful in your promises to us. And Lord, I, I pray that uh, this morning uh, your word would speak clearly to us. And, and there's probably some of us who, who don't necessarily believe your word or trust your word or, or see it as an important part of their life. Lord, I ask that you would just make it clear to them what you want to show them. And Lord, I'll ultimately ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, the primary feeling or experience of Advent is longing. That feeling of longing. Longing is, uh, is something that everybody can understand. This isn't like a Christian thing. This isn't like a church person thing. In fact, this is just like a human being thing. If you're a human being, then you understand what it's like to have longings. Longings are eager expectation for something that hasn't quite come yet. And obviously Christmas is just full of that feeling. Especially leading up to Christmas, now if you, if you are a kid, or if you have kids, or if you can remember being a kid, then you remember what it was like to long for Christmas to come, right? For just to anticipate it, and as your family, you know, put up the tree, and put, up, put the lights on the tree, which should happen after Thanksgiving, but for some of you sociopaths, it happens after Halloween, and for some of you people who belong in an institution, it's like Labor Day, but it should happen after Thanksgiving, you, you put up the tree, you put the lights on the tree, the music's playing, the lights are all over the city. All of that is building anticipation. Then the gifts come under the tree. You remember that when you're a kid and you start to see the gifts and it's like, how many days until I can open those? And you have the advent calendar. We're doing an advent calendar with my two-year-old daughter this year for the first time. Has these little boxes. She gets to open a prize uh, every, every morning. And it's like she opens one and it's like December 5th. And she's like, this one? And she points to like the 24th. And we're like, no, one a day. And she's like, no, this one. <laughs> Just that longing and anticipation for something to come. Now, I think especially in this season right now, in this past year of 2020, the longings are even greater in us, hoping for something to come that has not yet arrived. C.S. Lewis, in his little essay called The Weight of Glory, has a really great description of longing he describes it as the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, or news from a country we have never yet visited. That you could probably add in there a vaccine that we don't quite have yet, or a school that I can send my kids to in person, or, or relatives that we don't get to see over the holidays. Right? All of that has bubbled up longings in us to see a world come that we don't quite have right now. What, what can longings teach us? What can these things that we all kind of anticipate teach us about ourselves? Well, it, it shows us that we all desire and anticipate a world made whole, right? Like for the, for the chaos to stop and for there to be peace, Right, that, that we all desire a world of justice and righteousness, of, of beauty, of reconciliation, and ultimately of peace. 
Now, again, this is not just a, a 2020 thing. It's, it's pretty obvious to us this year, the chaotic year that we've had, but this is an every year thing. Every year we can reflect upon how we long for a world to be made right, long for a world to be made whole, how we long for peace in the midst of chaos. Now, as I mentioned, the teaching series that True Life Church is going through through Advent is focusing on how God has promised to meet these longings, how he's actually done something in the past and on the advent of Jesus is fulfilling those promises. And so today we're going to focus specifically on the promise of peace. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to be in Isaiah 9 to look at this. And Isaiah 9 is a promise given to the people of God 700 years ago. And it is an anticipation of something that God is going to do in the future. Now, let me give you a little bit of a background on Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 is a gra- about a group of people, the people of God, and they are in a state of longing. They are in a state of chaos. They were living in what we might call unprecedented times. Although there was nothing unprecedented about it, like many of these things had happened to them before, and similar to us, Uh, Many of the things in our day have happened before, but yet, for the sake of it, we'll call it unprecedented times, right? And so they're they're living in these really unpeaceful times. There's civil war going on within the nation of Israel. There's conflict with other nations and empires around them. uh, They're they're really facing oppression at the hands of their enemies, defeat, and, and possibly even exile to be removed from their homeland and have to serve other empires. That's kind of all that they're facing here. And really what we see in the, in the background of the story is the reason for all of this was it was their leader's fault. Like this didn't just happen to them. Their leaders had made very poor decisions. Specifically, they had trusted their own human wisdom and the kind of conventional wisdom of their day. They'd actually ignored direct commands from God and how they were to lead the nation. And that had plunged them into this state of darkness. The, the king at this time is King Ahaz. King Ahaz takes over leadership of Israel when he's 20 years old. And like a 20-year-old, he leads like a 20-year-old, which is to say he doesn't always make great decisions. Now, I, I just turned 30 recently, and so I'm, I'm past the bad decision-making of my life. That was all in my 20s. That's when that happens. When I was 20, I would climb 14ers in snowstorms. Now that I'm 30, I put like six jackets on my kids before we go outside when it's 45 degrees and sunny, right? And so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wise 30-year-old now, but for you in your 20s, you still, the worst is yet uh, to come for you. You're going to make the worst decisions of your life in your 20s. And so Ahaz is no different. He's no different. He, he, he doesn't always follow what's wise. He kind of follows what seems right in his eyes. And, and really for what, what that meant for him was uh, facing a really, really difficult conflict. Uh, at this time, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, the people of God, were actually split into two nations. And so you had the northern kingdom of Judah, led by King Ahaz, and then you had the southern kingdom, which was called Israel. And they were in the middle of a civil war, between each other. And so Ahaz is wondering, you know, what do we do? How do I protect my nation? How do we deliver this, you know, from this war? And, and a, a local kind of empire that was around them called Assyria had offered to help. And so he was being tempted to make a treaty with the Assyrian people. Now the Assyrian people, these are like the big bad empire of the day. So if you've ever seen like the movie 300, that's like Assyria right? They're the big bad empire of the day that was kind of conquering and really proclaiming themselves to be like, a, the leader would proclaim himself to be a god. And, and the god of Israel had specifically told his people not to associate with a nation like that. 
Do not form alliances with nations like that. They're violent, they're oppressive, they're anti-God. It will not go well with you. So, so don't form alliances with them. And Ahaz completely disobeys God, and he enters into a treaty with Assyria. Now this results in great darkness for them. They essentially become like a vassal state to Assyria, which means they have to serve them. And they're at the hands of this oppressive nation, and it just plunges them into darkness and longing, where they're really crying out and asking, when will there be freedom for us? When will we get to experience peace? When will we get rest? When will we get to be a nation again and have an identity again? And so the question leading into our passage in Isaiah 9 is this, how does God respond to a defeated people in the midst of darkness and chaos? And, and remember, they have been stubborn and disobedient and rebellious directly to how he's commanded them. So how will he respond to a disobedient, stubborn, corrupt people who refuse his wisdom and have brought disaster on themselves? What will God say? And here's what he says in Isaiah 9. Look with me, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In the midst of that chaos, in the midst of that darkness, God delivers a promise of peace. Now, look at how he describes this peace. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. So he's going to break the weapons of war that the oppressor is using. He's going to cut off the violence from their oppressor. Then he says in verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So he's going to take the, the clothing of war, the boots that are tramping over them, the garments that are rolled in blood from, from the violence, he's going to take that, he's going to burn them, as in he's, he's going to bring peace. He's going to cut off them off from this conflict. He's going to destroy the weapons of war. Now, remember, their darkness was specifically due to a refusal to trust God. That's what caused this. Their mess was their own doing. Their own rebellion led to their suffering. That's what had caused this darkness. It wasn't by chance. It was their fault. And, and in the same way, if we're just considering our day and our lives and our world, 
in so much, in so much of our darkness, so much of what we deal with, our unrest is due for the same reason. A failure to trust God at his word and to rather trust conventional wisdom and human wisdom. Like, just, just reflect on this question. Have you ever blown it so bad? Like, I mean, I, I know we all have, but have you ever, can you think of a time in your life where you've just blown it and then you've kind of had to suffer the consequences of your own actions? Like, you were caught, you know, stealing or lying or cheating or talking about someone behind their back or you hurt someone that you love, right? You, kn- you know that you just blew it and it kind of kind of blew up in your face and you're having to deal with the consequences of that. There's a lot of different ways you can respond to that. And one of the common ways that we generally respond to that is we get mad at God. Like, how could you let this happen to me? How could you let this pain in my life, the suffering in my life? Or you can go the opposite way, right? You could just accept it by just living in the shame of your actions. Like, yeah, I deserve this. You just, you just embody the shame of what you've done because you know that it was your fault. This is generally how we react in this kind of darkness. And so the question for us today is, how does God respond to the rejection of his good counsel for us? The rebellion to his leadership. How does he respond to that? And what do we see? He responds with grace and he responds with love. In fact, he actually gives a gift. He sends a child. We read about this child in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And this is, this is his name. His name is going to embody his character. This is going to be who he is. He's going to be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's going, to be, he's going to be different than the ruler that they've had. He's going to be different, in fact, than all the rulers that they've had before, even the best ones, because he's a wonderful counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. And I know when we think of the word counselor, we probably think of like, uh, like a mental health counselor, like a therapist, or maybe someone who gives counsel, someone who gives like good advice, wonderful counselor. Um, but, that, but that's actually not what this word means here. A counselor here is like an official title for a ruler. This is like a government position. It's an official title. A counselor is a ruler. And so he's going to actually hold office. He's going to hold a position of leadership within their government and their governing structures. And, and what kind of ruler is he going to be? He's the prince of peace. Now, when sometimes we hear prince of peace, we think like, He's like the prince of all peace. So it's like he's the best at peace. But actually, no, he's a prince. That's like an official title. And the way that he's characterized, what kind of prince is he? He's a peaceful prince. He's a prince who brings peace. Now, peace here is far more than generally how it's used around the Christmas season, which is kind of just like an empty phrase, right? It's kind of just like peace on earth goodwill to men. That's, that's what we want during this season. We just, just a little bit of peace. And then oftentimes we can also think of peace as just kind of the absence of hostility. Like when we say like, we just want peace on earth, we just mean the fighting to stop, the war to stop, the violence to stop. We just want the absence of hostility. Um, or, or sometimes you'll hear, you know, quite often people will talk about inner peace. We just need like some inner peace in my life. I think this is probably one of the ways that the 
you know, how popular the New Age movement has gotten and, and Eastern practices have gotten. They talk a lot about inner harmony, inner peace, enlightenment. And if, if that's you, if you're kind of interested in some Eastern religions and some of the things they bring, like that would make perfect sense. That seems, that seems wise to want inner peace. But, and yet, the word for peace here is, is far more than the absence of hostility. It's more than a platitude that we throw around at Christmas. And it's definitely more than this sense of just acceptance of one's life, inner peace. The word for peace here comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which you've probably heard of before. And the word shalom is actually better translated completeness or wholeness. The idea of everything flowing and working completely together. Or you could translate the word welfare. So here's a good picture of shalom. Shalom is like a beautiful tapestry where all the threads are woven together and it forms an immaculate picture where no thread is out of place, where no color doesn't match. Everything is woven together perfectly. And, that, and that's a vision or a picture of what society would be like if it had shalom. Every relationship, every institution, every group of people woven together harmoniously, working together for the welfare of all. Society woven together, relationships woven together, humanity and God woven together for the welfare of all. Isn't that what you want? Right now, in our world, considering our situation, considering the chaos of this year, is that not what we all long for? A beautiful tapestry woven together where we all flourish. We actually get uh, this description of what this peace would look like. Look at verse 7 with me. This is, this is kind of teasing out what a prince of peace, how he would rule. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So that's both an eternal aspect, like it's, it's just going to keep going on and on and on and on, and it's saying there's no limit to the amount of harmony and welfare that will be brought to those who are under his rule. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness. Everything is equal. Nobody, nobody gets to get ahead at expense of another. There's no oppression. There's no violence. There's no injustice. Perfect righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, so who is this child? Right? We, we have a son that's going to be given a gift of a child. This is what he's going to be. Who is it? Now, this is obvious to you guys, right? Obviously, you know your Bible, you know the Old Testament, you know the prophet Isaiah. This is obviously King Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. That's what you were thinking, right? Because we read about a son that's given in chapters 36 through 39 of Isaiah, and his name is King Hezekiah, and he's a good king, many of whom believed was the fulfillment of this prophecy. In fact, if you remember our story, Israel, the, specifically the northern kingdom of Judah, is a vassal state to Assyria at this time. Well, Assyria actually decided they didn't just want to have part ownership over Israel. They wanted the whole thing. And so they began a campaign of conquering all the surrounding villages all the way to the heart of Judah, which was Jerusalem itself. And they're just like wreaking havoc. I mean, scorched earth, 
conquering village after village after village. And eventually in the story, they make their way to the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a fortified city. It was actually, it stood on top of a hill. And so it was actually, it was very difficult to take. You couldn't just kind of knock on the door and come in and conquer it. It it would take a a really strategic military uh, campaign to take Jerusalem. And so that's what Assyria did, led by their king. His name was King Sennacherib. They launched a campaign of siege warfare on Jerusalem. Now, here's, here's what siege warfare looked like. Siege warfare was when you would come across a fort with huge walls that you couldn't just penetrate. You would cut off their supply lines and lock them in their city. And so you cut off their access to water. You cut off their access to food. You cut off their access to reinforcements. And then you just wait them out. And eventually the people would get hungry. The people would begin to die of thirst. The sanitation would become horrible in there. In fact, we even hear them taunting the people of Israel. And he said, and they're like, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to eat your own dung and drink your own urine? That's what they say. That's in the Bible, by the way. So it was was horrible to experience siege warfare. But it was actually a pretty good strategy to break down a huge fort. And so that's what Assyria did to Jerusalem. Now, King Hezekiah, unlike his father, King Ahaz, does the opposite. He humbles himself, and he seeks God. And he says, God, what am I to do in this situation? Do I surrender to this ungodly nation? And he seeks the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah says, the Lord will deliver you. If you merely trust him, you do not give in to this nation. Trust in what God has for you. He will deliver you. And what happens is actually incredible in the story, is the people of Israel in Jerusalem, they wake up one day, and the, the Assyrian army, which has been encamped outside the fort, which they say is about 185,000 people, are just miraculously wiped out. It says an angel of the Lord went through their camp, and there's just the whole army is just laid dead before them, and they have victory. I know what you're thinking. This is one of those Bible stories that were like, that's interesting, but what really happened? And, and here's what's fascinating. We have three historical records of this. We have a record from the Assyrians. We have a historical record from the Egyptians who kind of kept tabs on what was going on around in this region. And we have the biblical record, the Hebrew record. And all three, they, they, they have a lot of differences in terms of the details, but all three agree on one major thing that happened. And that is Assyria was the most powerful empire at the time. No one was able to stop them. And suddenly their campaign was halted at Jerusalem at the same time. All three agree on that. Now, this has actually baffled modern historians. Like, what, what really happened? They don't, they don't exactly accept the biblical record. They don't exactly accept uh, an angel of the Lord wiped out the nation. And so, but, it, but it's really become like an anomaly, an enigma for, for modern historians. And, and they've come up with a conclusion. And their best conclusion was, the nation of Assyria was wiped out because of mice. They said mice must have brought some disease into the camps and, and, it, and it spread, and they all died. Which I guess in 2020 is kind of believable that that could happen. And, uh, and so fine, fine, modern historians. You, you can have mice. An angel of the Lord could be a mouse. Whatever you want. But I find that fascinating that they all agree on this. And so is Hezekiah the promised son? He trusted the Lord. He brought peace. He, brought, he delivered them. He was a wonderful counselor. He was a good leader. Well, actually, if you continue reading the story of Hezekiah, 
that's not how it ends. In fact, his, his pride sort of gets the best of him. His, his greed gets the best of him. He welcomes the next great big bad empire in, which was Babylon. He gives them like a tour of Jerusalem. He shows off the temple to them, and they use that information to conquer Jerusalem, to take the people of God into captivity, and then the exile happens. They are removed from their homeland under rule of a wicked nation, Babylon. That's what happens in the story of Hezekiah. The people plunged into darkness and chaos again. And this is the pattern of every Israelite king, of every king before and every king after. So he can't be the promised child of Isaiah 9. Now, after the exile to the Babylonian Empire, some 700 years after Hezekiah, the people are still in a state of chaos, of darkness, of longing, and God meets them with the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 9. We read about this in the book of Matthew. This is the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And this is how Jesus, this is how the ministry of Jesus is announced. This is Matthew 4, 13 through 17. I think we'll have it up on a slide here for you. And leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's a quote from Isaiah that we just read. And now here's a summary of the ministry of Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand is the best snapshot of Jesus' ministry, of, of what he preached everywhere he went. The kingdom of heaven, or sometimes referred to as the kingdom of God, it, it invites us to imagine what would it look like for God himself to rule and reign on earth. In fact, Jesus taught about this in the Lord's Prayer. He said, pray this, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What would it look like for a God of perfect justice, of perfect love, of perfect wisdom and counsel to come to earth and his rule to be executed perfectly? That's the kingdom of heaven. Or as Isaiah says it, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so, and so we can just imagine, what if God's perfect will was done right now here on earth as it is in heaven? He, he set the world right and all the longings that we have for peace and for a world put back together, what if all of that was fulfilled? That's what Jesus came to do. And he can do it because he's not like the other kings. He's a wonderful counselor. His counsel is not just human wisdom. It's not just cultural wisdom or conventional wisdom. It's wonderful, meaning it's supernatural. It supersedes anything that we're capable of. And he's a prince of peace. His kingship is marked by a wisdom that comes from God that brings about shalom and welfare for all. Now, Jesus' life 
actually gives a picture and a foretaste of this kingdom of God. Everywhere he went, he brought shalom. And so we see this in how Jesus healed the sick, right? Healing the sick. When, when you're sick, your body is, is torn apart. Your body is not at peace with itself. And so he healed the sick to bring shalom to people's bodies. He gave sight to the blind. He, get, he had compassion for the lowly. He went after the outcast. He restored social outcast to dignity. He's just repairing the, the social fabric that had been ripped apart. And then he even raises the dead, which death is the most amount of tearing apart in our world that you can possibly have, and yet we all have to deal with it. But Jesus raised the dead, bringing shalom to even things that were dead. And then through his, that's through his life and his ministry, but then through his death, his death actually cleanses people from sin. Sin, the very thing that tears apart the fabric of society, that is the reason and the power behind humans and their violence towards one another and their injustice towards one another. His death actually cleanses people from sin. And then his resurrection is the beginning of a new kind of life, a new kind of life and a new kind of body that can never die again. And he says that's the foretaste of a new kingdom that's coming in a new world, in a new heavens and new, and new earth that will be marked by eternal life, a new kind of life that goes on and on and on and that can never die again. Jesus said, when you're with me, that kingdom is so close, it's like at hand. And then he gives a message, repent. When the kingdom comes, the message for us is to repent. Repent means to turn. It means to go in a different direction. It means if you're driving on I-70, going east, hoping to ski, all you're going to get is Kansas. There ain't no skiing in Kansas. And so you need to repent, which means you need to drive west on I-70, as I saw many people doing on the way here this morning, so that you can get to the mountains to go ski. Repent means literally to be going in one direction and to turn and go the other. And so the message to repent is for us to ask ourselves, who is your counselor? Who, who, who do you go to for wisdom? Who are you trusting to repair this world? Who do you think, where do you think we're going to find peace? To, to consider that. Like, what am I trusting? And then to turn away from that and to turn towards a wonderful counselor. Now, if I, if I were to just guess, I would say if most of us are asking ourselves that question, like, who is my counselor? Who is my wisdom? Who do I think is going to bring peace in this world? I, I mean, most of us would probably say, some combination of ourselves and the conventional wisdom of our day. That every, every age, every society just has a general cultural wisdom, and it's so easy to just adopt it and follow it and think, yeah, that's, that's right. That's wrong. And, and, and if that's you, again, that, that makes perfect sense. That's, that's logical. That's reasonable. I mean, this is, this is the message that is generally in the culture around Christmas time, isn't it? We hear this all the time. We hear like, hey, spread your joy. Like, be kind to one another. Seek peace. Give gifts. Be the light in the world that you want to see. And I can sympathize with that message. Like, I think we should be kind. I think we should give gifts. I think, I think we should have a general cheeriness around this season. 
And yet, the true message of Christmas is not the kingdom of heaven comes through you, that you have the light to bring to this world. No, a son is given means light that conquers darkness is given not from within, it's given from without. Like, let's just even consider how we get heat and light in our earth. We get heat and light from the sun. It's given to us. Heat and light do not come from within the earth. We need an outside source to give them to us. In the same sense, we need an outside source to give us the peace that we so long for in this world. And so to repent means to admit, you know what, humans and myself, like I actually don't have the resources to fix the world. Like, I, I don't have what it takes. Like, we as a society, we, we don't have what it takes, and we will never progress to a point where we will have what it takes to create the world that we all long for. Like, we just need to admit that. And then the true message of Christmas is to receive the gift of God's Son and receive the gift, gift of His kingdom. To repent of everything in us that's not wholly surrendered and submitted to the reign of Jesus Christ. To just give that all to Him and to receive what He has for us, to receive that our greatest need is actually met with his peace. See, our greatest need is actually to be put back into relationship with God. Like that, that ripping apart of that relationship is at the very basis for all of our societal issues, for all of the chaos we see in the world. It's actually that we're not connected to our Father. And so to repent is to be is to re- and to receive the gift of the Son is to be put back into relationship with the Father, to have our greatest need met. And this is actually how Jesus fulfills his promise of peace. His body is broken. His blood is poured out. That cleanses us of sin and delivers us into God's kingdom. Or as we sang at the beginning of our service today, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. How? God and sinners reconciled. So this Christmas, this season, this month, if you understand that message to repent and turn to God, you actually receive the gift of peace he promised. You receive the Son, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the message of Christmas will make no sense to you. It'll just be a bunch of empty platitudes and superficial feelings that mask deep hurt and longing in us. Now, if you remember, Advent doesn't just look back on the first coming of Jesus, but Advent is about looking forward to the arrival of Jesus in his return. See, the kingdom, he said, it's at hand. As in, you can have a foretaste of it through his first coming, but we still await a time where it will come in full. That's why we still have longings in this day. That's why we still have chaos. That's why we haven't fully experienced the peace that was promised is because we're still awaiting a return from Jesus where he he will bring the kingdom in full and bring complete peace to this world. And in that day, every day will feel like Christmas except without the anticipation and without it being over in a day. And so throughout this month, as you feel that increased desire for like Christmas to come, as you see it in the kids, as you, as you feel that longing for this pandemic to end, for that 2020 just to be over, channel that same energy towards looking forward to the day when his kingdom will arrive in full and we'll get to enjoy a new heavens and new earth. 
Now, in our waiting, each week as a church, we come together to partake of the Lord's Supper, of the bread and of the cup, which represent the body of Jesus broken for us and his blood poured out for us. And that's a reminder of what Jesus has given us in his first coming, cleansing from sin, delivering us to a new kingdom, peace with God, and reconciliation with the Father. And so each week we partake of this, and we say we do it and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as you partake of the Lord's Supper, rem remember the peace that's been given, with you, given to you now, reconciliation with God, and also long for his return. And so I'm going to invite you as the band comes up to sing, to, to partake of communion. If you uh, are not going to partake of communion, another way is you can just take a next step, especially if you're just beginning to explore faith or just find interest in Jesus. You can just take a next step, and you can do that through either considering a community group in the spring or just any of the number of ways that Caleb mentioned at the beginning, Bishop Caleb, excuse me, mentioned at the beginning of the service. You can go online uh, and, and do that as well. As the band sings, and I invite you to, to sing and respond through song, there will also be some people who will pray with you uh, in the back of the room. And so if you need prayer for anything, I invite you to experience that today. And so come and partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for sending us a son, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. Lord, we know that we need peace now. We long for the temporary to be made peaceful, for the pandemic to end, Lord. We continue to pray and ask that you would do that to protect our loved ones. Lord, we long for you to heal division that we experience in our nation and in our homes. We long for all these things, and yet we know, God, that we will continue to have longings until you come in full. And so remind us of the, of the arrival and the advent of Jesus in his second coming and restore us today through the peace that you've given through your son, Jesus, to connect us to you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by his spirit. Amen.